Welcome to a new episode of Latinos Who Tech, a podcast that explores Latinos at the intersection of technology, productivity, and authenticity. My name is Hugo Castellanos, and I work in Silicon Valley. As I mentioned in our last episode, I was able to attend the Hackathon by Code for Venezuela from February 14th to the 16th of 2020. Code for Venezuela is a non-for-profit based in San Francisco that has as a mission build solutions that help Venezuelans in Venezuela through their skills in software and data science. While at the hackathon, I actually got to see more than 100 students and volunteers working together to build uh, data analytic solutions for Venezuelans. Essentially, it comes down to the fact that NGOs in Venezuela have a lot of data, and it's mostly gathered manually and using very rudimentary methods, uh, things like Google Sheets, uh, pen and paper, and um, the information that they are gathering range from availability of supplies within hospitals, numbers of beds, and uh, also information on the current status of power blackouts, water shortages, things of that nature. And even though they have the data, they're gathering the data, these NGOs, they have the challenge of how they turn this data into actionable results. This is where the expertise of the Venezuelans in Silicon Valley and the master's students at the data analytics program from HALT, International Business School, come in place. And it was very refreshing, actually, to see that... uh, yeah, most of the participants in the hackathon were not from Venezuela. So that was very interesting. Uh, a lot of them that I spoke with were actually extremely excited to be working with uh, real data. Because uh, what happens is that when they're in an academic environment, they have uh, very clean data sets. And uh, everything's very uh, squeaky clean and very, um, I'd say... Um, under ideal conditions. So they were very refreshed to see real data. And the challenge of having to uh, look at the bias in the data, because uh, again, when people are manually entering data, they make mistakes. It's, uh, it's the nature of uh, gathering data. So having to compensate for those things makes it for some very interesting problems. And uh, over the weekend, I got to see them build some user-friendly dashboards and prototypes that NGOs can use right away. If you want to find out more about the projects that the students built, you can go to codeforvenezuela.org. Now, in a personal note, I'm having a great time making this content, but I need your help. I'd like to make it all the way to 50 episodes of Latinos Who Tech, at least, but I need your support to actually pay for hosting, and I'd love to hire a full-time editor to help me with the podcast. So I've gone ahead and created a Patreon for Latinos Who Tech. You can check it out at patreon.com slash Latinos Who Tech. Over there, you can have access to premium content on career development and topics such as how to get a job in Silicon Valley, as well as a Slack community of podcast listeners like you. And I will also be hosting a monthly crowdcast, so you can ask me anything about living, working here, and just general career development. So check it out at patreon.com slash Latinos Who Tech. It's also in the show notes. Thank you for your support. Joaquin Delgado. Joaquin has extensive experience in Silicon Valley. He is about to talk about how to build a career in business analysis. And he's one of the leaders of the Venezuelan community here in the Bay. We are very proud and happy to have you both here. Um, so, I hope you enjoy. Thank you. 
Okay, welcome to an episode of Latinos Attack. Thank you, Fabiola. Thank you, everybody. I want everybody to give yourself a hand of applause for being here on a Sunday evening. opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the time and the effort put in all these projects. I'm very impressed. Uh, went to a couple of presentations. I can say it's great work. So congratulations, guys. So tell me your story. How do you get into tech? Uh, how does an electronics engineer from Universidad Simón Bolívar Caracas, Venezuela. Oh, by the way, we have a gift for you. Uh, we brought you one for So, how do you get to Silicon Valley? How do you get into this uh, seven by seven bubble where we live? Well, it started in, in uh, I, I, uh, I lived in the United States when I was a child uh, in Austin, Texas. Um, so I was exposed very early to uh, multicultural um, scenarios and uh, when I went back to Venezuela uh, I was 10 um, I got to um, go to um, Universidad Simón Bolívar and study their computer engineering and uh, um, there are many many choices when you're you know you want to continue your studies and do masters um, I was looking to study in the United States my father had uh, done his business uh, administration in University of Texas, so I was uh, versed in, in, in English and trying to look for that. And then suddenly there was a project. I remember the fifth generation of um, computers and AI project in Japan um, that draw that drew my attention. So I applied for a scholarship called Monbusho, which is uh, the, the Japanese uh, government gives to uh, to applicants uh, around the world. And I was lucky enough to uh, obtain that scholarship. So I went to Japan, and I spent uh, the first three years doing masters, uh, and, um, and then uh, made a decision to continue um, doing my PhD. Though I'm not inclined to becoming a professor in, acad uh, in academics, but I was interested in pursuing more uh, research and more, I was really fascinated about AI and machine learning uh, at that time. Uh, big data did not exist as today, but I had the opportunity to learn uh, more and more about the field. Um, then uh, I, uh, I, was, um, I, I graduated and um, got to work for a startup. So a startup hired me to come to, uh, to New York, actually, and started a company called Matters that later was renamed to Triple Hop Technologies. And we started working with recommenders. So that was like the initial stage where ranking and recommendations were introduced to me and, um, uh, as, as an application. Um, and then many, many things happened and I ended up here, but primarily through acquisition. So I started with startups and I've been back and forth between startups and bigger companies. So I've been in Oracle and uh, then I founded, uh, co-founded Lending Club, worked at Groupon and finally I'm at Amazon Music in Saragamada. So my question for you then is, uh, I know that a lot of the students here come from an international background, and something that Hull strives for is that every master's student has that international experience. You know, we had a campus in Boston, the campus here, campus in Asia and Europe. So what's it like to get your PhD in Japan? You know, that adaptability, what was that like, that culture shock? Uh, maybe some tips for people that are studying for the first time abroad? Yes. Um, it was definitely a, a cultural shock to go directly from Venezuela to Japan. And uh, very different culture, very different language. Um, I, uh, uh, initially, it was, it was very frightening. You didn't know how even to ask for food. Um, and uh, the, the language, the steepness of the, the curve to learn the language is pretty steep. Um, I went into intensive six months uh, to learn the language and then was like given that and only that as training. Uh, the good thing is that in Japan, uh, there is a hunger for international input. 
and a lot of people there don't speak well English. So many times you were selected to represent the school, uh, work on papers, and present abroad. So I had the chance to work in research and become kind of the forefront uh, representative of my lab, right? And I went to many, many different conferences. And in fact, to earn a PhD in Japan, there's a point system. So you have to go to X number of international conferences, you have to publish in X number of uh, papers in international journals. And most of it was English, but then over six years, you, you have to survive, so you learn Japanese as well. Uh, but the, uh, the experience was one of a kind. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the culture was, was humbling and very, uh, a mix of the tradition and the future of technology and ancestry uh, from a very, very long time right uh, ago. Um, it was incredible. I mean, the, the, from a business perspective also, I got to understand uh, a lot of the Japanese companies, uh, you know, uh, culture and, 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 and philosophy. And, uh, and uh, that still applies today. So I'm still learning to be very uh, much uh, aware of time, aware of, uh, of, of different, uh, let's say, business processes. And uh, Japan was incredible for me. It's fantastic. I love that you mentioned the aspect of time because, uh, uh, and I'm guilty of this, of sometimes being in Venezuelan time. Uh, I'm guilty of that. Uh, no, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I wonder if you can maybe talk to us a little bit about that experience of having your startup being acquired. Uh, because uh, we hear about this idea of, uh, great, we graduate college and then we get a job. But instead, as an acquihire, you start a company and then gets bought out. So maybe you can share with us what was that experience like? And maybe some key learnings from that. So the first company I, I started was, uh, was Triple Hop Technologies. And it was back in the year 2000, a long time back. Um, but uh, what was interesting is the ups and downs. At uh, that time, there was this dot bust. Basically, all the internet companies started going uh, southward. Uh, and um, we were able to survive. And I think that was uh, through, um, it's a marathon, right? So you, you, you have ups and downs, and, and you just have to um, insist and persist and continue doing what you, what you, where your passion live. Uh, so we were able to survive, and uh, I got to pitch the company to a Oracle, and Oracle was interested at that time in, in uh, enterprise search as a way to glue uh, and to obtain uh, results and data from different systems. So it was not only you know uh, the uh, JD Edwards that they had bought, the Oracle Enterprise Suite, and the different uh, repositories of information. We had built connectors to basically index all these documents and objects, and we were doing uh, a search across all these different repositories. So they were very interested in the technology. They acquired us, and the company and the technology. Uh, so that was a first, uh, I would say, taste. Um, obviously, we, you know, it was not a huge acquisition. It was kind of a private you know, acquisition. Uh, and what I've learned is that as you develop technologies, um, and, and, and it, it happened to me several times. Um, the journey is more important than the outcome, uh, many times. And uh, I think I've been biased to going to, uh, uh, going to startups because even in the worst case scenario, uh, thanks God, aqua hires have happened. And people say, well, is an aqua hire really uh, a good outcome? And I would say a very good outcome. Many times you have to think about how many um, startups end up disappearing, right, and not even going anywhere. Um, and an aqua-hire is, is a case where you take, for example, the people that are working on the projects, the employees, and pitch them. Uh, so that maybe the IP, or the actual tech of a company is not acquired, but the company's uh, resource, the software engineers, the, the product managers, then go together to another company. So that happened with us. Um, in, in a second startup uh, at Bright that I, I was in, but it was acquired by Intel. The terms that that division was acquired by Verizon and so on and so forth. So there's a there's a an interesting uh, game to play because um, you know uh, it, it's not just about uh, it's really important thing is the is the team. 
keeping the team together, offering them opportunities to grow. And that has led to people following me and also growing and mentoring people to, that are now in different positions across the Bay Area and, and doing well, very well by themselves. So very proud of that mentorship uh, and acquisition through acquisition um, you know, uh, experience. Uh, so switching gears a bit into the business analytics side of the things and building your career, uh, could you show hands how many of you are enrolled in the master's program? Uh, how many of you graduate within the next six months? How many of you want a job? <laughs> Great. Okay. So, Joaquin, how do they get a job in business Um, well, uh, I, first of all, I guess that the, the whole um, sphere of like data science really is a, a many, many different roles. And I did realize that I looked at your pens and, 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 the, and the courses you're taking, and it touches a bit about each one of those kind of roles, right? One of, obviously, the, 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 the math and statistics and background and, and core uh, sciences that one needs to learn, right? Uh, the other one is the data engineering aspect. So this this afternoon we, we heard about um, uh, data pipelines and data engineering and data processing, right? Um, then there's the machine learning aspect, which is how do you take that data and make it actionable and create models that can actually solve and predict and, and do things on your behalf. So I would actually ask you, where does your passion live? Is your passion data and visualization and interpretation of the data. Most of the so-called business analysts, uh, or, you know, are, is, are doing that, right? right. They take that data and act. So, an area of, of uh, a role very much that I've seen business analysts performing well is in product management. Actually, why? Because they take, especially technical product management, they are able to do these queries, interpret, process information, and get hands-on but ultimately help the business make decisions. But if your interest is in programming and, and making and cleaning up the data and, and making sure that the data is regularized and, 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 and uh, quality is measured and processed and scale, then data engineering is your, is your forte, right? Uh, and, and similarly, if you're interested in, in, in making sure that the data is, is uh, is actionable and then ultimately results in a program or a model that then does uh, automatically predictions and estimations and solves the problem of optimization, then machine learning is your is your forte. So it depends. I think that you need to look at the different roles that are available, uh, TPM roles, uh, purely business analytics roles, um, machine learning roles, programming roles, and decide uh, upfront. So that brings me to the, the next question. Uh, you've been a people manager for a while and leading teams and founding companies. And I'm wondering, what's your philosophy on hiring people? Uh, how do you go about building a team? Uh, what are the attributes you look for in somebody that's uh, going to be a contributor to your team? Yes, uh, building a team um, is one of the most interesting and more difficult things that a, a manager uh, uh, does. And it, it is difficult because ultimately uh, it's a combination of, of looking at resources and opportunities and you're trying to build uh, complementary skills inside the team. So it's really more, uh, I would say, like a, a coach, right? Building a team around uh, a soccer, uh, you know, uh, team or uh, you know teams that are doing uh, different that have to take care of different aspects. So if you hire people that are all have, bring the same things, you end up in, in, in you know basically with nothing. You really have to make sure that the complementary aspects of what they're good at and what their motivation is is present, uh, and therefore um, looking at. Um, what they bring to the table, um, how can they contribute in their interactions with their uh, team members. Uh, collaboration uh, is, is, is key for that. So, um, so let's say that you have an open rank for a business analyst or a 
generalist data scientist in your team, what skills do you think they need to have in their toolbox right now to hit the ground running? Um, part of it is the ability to um, process data at scale. So I think that um, there are certain cloud-based uh, tools and technologies like Today, we were, they were talking about the Google stack and the AWS stack and coming from Amazon, of course, and we use that every day. But the ability to understand what tools to use for the job, specifically uh, whether I need to use Kafka or for right. creating pub-sub systems, uh, or I need to use a programming language like Python uh, to be able to quickly handle uh, different types of data structures and, and data uh, and, and, and process using that, or I need to really have uh, an expertise in SQL, right? So those are the, are the things that, so data is, is the base. Once you know how to handle and process data, then I would say that that's the foundations, right? In terms of then, uh, it, it's about the different aspects of the job. Again, visualization and processing from a perspective of understanding and interpretation, like tools like Tableau, and we saw several presentations today or are, are very critical to, to, that, to the job. Um, but understanding how then you can make that actionable. So, uh, and that's where machine learning is the future, is, or the present, really. Uh, you take, uh, once that data is present, what can you do with it? How can you process it to make it actionable? And I, that's one of the areas that I think of that is the most interesting from a perspective of what to study next. So in making data actionable, and again, from a technical standpoint, what role has mentoring played on your career? So having somebody uh, probably a couple steps ahead of you, coaching you, mentoring you, has that played a role in your career? Very much. I mean, um, I, I always remember a, a very um, a good, I would say, um, manager that I had at, at, at Yahoo. I worked at Yahoo for six years. Um, <coughs> And uh, his, uh, his approach to mentor, mentoring it was very interesting. It was uh, challenging, uh, always trying to push the limit, but at the same time giving you space. So almost like go, uh, deep dive, press, and walk away. And what I found interesting about that is the fact that uh, he, he let me grow as a, as a at that time, a principal um, and, and contributor, but also let me lead and decide um, to take on harder projects by pushing, pushing me harder and harder. So it, it is not, I think mentoring is something that it sometimes is uncomfortable because that tension uh, has to be there in order for you to grow, like being a parent in some kind. You have to create that tension. But, uh, but at the same time, knowing when to leave you alone to, to, to actually exercise what you've just learned. So, and it, it, it is sad when a mentor leaves and one typically wants to follow them. But, um, but I think that uh, at some point it's good because then you almost say, now I'm ready, right? So in that conversation of where I am, how am I doing, and the feedback that they give you is invaluable. That's, that's the, really the, the, the beauty around mentorship. And it's it's the, the benefit you get out of it. I wonder if people that you mentor at your current role or people that you mentor from startups or companies you advise, uh, what does a star mentee look like? What attributes are you looking for on the people that you mentor that you say, wow, I really want to see you grow I'm impressed by what you're doing. What what attributes are you doing? Uh, passion, self motivation um, is critical for success. Um, uh, I would say curiosity and um, this insisting on higher standards. So and pushing themselves and pushing yourself uh, to the next level. So it, it again, it's a marathon. So I'm looking for the ones that are running for, for the end goal, not necessarily they're working for you know, very small uh, objectives, but really are trying to 
uh, push themselves to the limit and go next to the next level, right? Those are, 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 are it's exciting to mentor them. However, sometimes you do mentor and, and people turn around if they're not at the level you, you're expecting them to be. So I've been very much surprised um, by how much influence one can have as a mentor in, in people's careers. So that is, is inspiring and, and it's also humbling because suddenly you, you realize that, uh, and you know about it later because they, they tell you um, that you're, you, make, you make an impact in their lives, right? So it's a very interesting, um, I would say, aspect of mentorship that uh, I cherish. And people have done that with me. So the best thing you can do is you know, do that again with others. And, and then you know, see them grow and go and do things. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Uh, the audience would really uh, be annoyed at me or uh, threaten me if I don't ask you this. So, can you share with me the Lending Club, the story around that, and getting started? Because uh, I'm really curious on, you know, again, how did that happen? Yeah, so that's a very uh, interesting um, part of my life and my career. So it, it happened that the Triple Hop Technology, remember the company that I created in, and we created in, um, in New York, were, was made um, by a couple of um, lawyers and myself. So that's the first time I, I interacted with lawyers uh, here in the US. And, and they were um, um, merchant acquisition lawyers. So they were trying to really, they were looking at startups and they tried to um, make a startup on their own because they felt that you know the internet was the next big thing and, and they were right. Um, and one of them um, continued to, and came here to Oracle when, with the acquisition, actually both of them, uh, Renault Laplanche, and he um, he went to UK one day and saw a company called Zopa. Now it turns out that Zopa was the first peer-to-peer -peer lending company out there in, in that was created. So Lending Club was not the first. And if you think about the the uh, some of the most, uh, uh, I would say, the biggest companies we have in the Bay Area are we're not the first, or in the, com in the world for that matter, we're not the first at doing some things. Like Google was not the first search engine. Facebook was not the first uh, social network. And so we, you know, Lending Club was not the first. So he um, founded Lending Club and invited me to come as CTO. And um, it was a challenge. I was never, I've never done finance. Never created systems around banks and interactions with the different uh, credit scoring companies. Um, but it was a challenge that I very much uh, enjoyed. I created a team, um, hired people, mostly came from Oracle and other places that had worked with me before. And uh, we started and launched our the first version of Lending Club at F8. I don't know if anyone here remembers F8, but it was the first time Facebook uh, created applications within um, within their environment, with their ecosystem. So the next day they were calling about, oh, Facebook is lending money. <laughs> and everyone was like going around like, what is, what is this peer-to-peer -peer lending concept? Um, I very much interested in the search and recommendation uh, space, um, created a couple of things that uh, in the IP of Lending Club that I felt were interesting. One is uh, ways to search loans for loans and and organize the results so that you can invest in, in loans with your criteria as an investor. And the other one is automatic creation of portfolio as a, as a recommender system. So basically, as an investor, I would say, here's my degree of, of risk and reward, and it would automatically create a portfolio based on, at that time, your Facebook connection. So I would say, people coming from the same university, like Simon Bolivar and others, there's some kind of uh, association or um, interest between the, the lender and the borrower. So that's how the idea came along. Um, at the same time, then the financial crisis came. And uh, it's a, it's a you know, you, you never look back and say, oh, why shouldn't I have stayed in Lending Club? Yes, you do. <laughs> but, but the reality is um, you, you go and, and do your best wherever you go, right? So what happened at that time is that uh, you know, I have a family. It was my second startup with the same guy. Excellent, in, you know, uh, experience. 
However, I decided to take a job at, at Yahoo uh, doing machine learning at scale. So that was the other thing. Uh, until then, uh, even Lending Club was not really at scale. It was a very small company doing small data, and I had the opportunity to go and, and you know learn from the big leagues. So so I did. And uh, well, the good thing is I kept some of the of the, of the shares. <laughs> uh, and and uh, but but yeah, very very interesting experience. One thing for sure, the bag of tricks, these core competencies about data and machine learning and, and your interest in, in ap ap applied science, so basically taking statistics and, and math and make use of it from a business perspective, repeats again and again. So search and recommendation. Okay, and it started with enterprise search. Then I went to finance, but it turns out that one of the problems there was how to build portfolios, how to search and present results to the user, the ranking problem. That ranking problem exists then again in advertising. So in advertising, large amount of data, you're trying to show the right ad to the right customer. It's a ranking problem. You take data, process it, create models, your prediction of what ad will people click on or they buy things from it is again something that involves large amount of data and mathematical models to resolve. And the story repeats in different domains. So then I went to e-commerce. Then objective is different, objective function there is, is, is a little bit different, but same thing. Events, data processing, a lot of signals that have to be taken into account, creation of models that then can help the business solve the problem of selling what, they, what people want. And there is personalization, uh, ranking, and showing the customer what they need at the right time, at the right place, uh, in, the, in considering all the different variables. Right? So that formula of making sure you uh, harness the data and make it actionable through some type of machine learning uh, technique uh, led me finally to Amazon, uh, has been a constant through my career. And it's, it's pretty much in the search, ranking, and recommendation space. So it is a little bit more specialized, but it starts all starts with understanding the data. That's why business analytics is, is a great place to start for that. So what would you say is the biggest challenge right now in your current role in, at Amazon Music? Uh, where's the opportunity for people that want to start their career there? Yeah, Amazon Music, or music in general, is a hard problem to solve. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's very personal. Um, I think the music uh, evolves very quickly. What is um, uh, trending today changes overnight. There's sensations, YouTubers. YouTube makes, and the other platforms make uh, a huge impact in what is popular, what is trending, what, is, what people want to uh, listen to. There's new artists and uh, they come up you know, every week, right? And I think what's, what's interesting about music is that it's, it's never stable. It's never, it, it always is changing you know, at a fast pace. So some of the traditional machine learning algorithms that I used to use, like the, what's also called supervised learning, um, and, and, and to some extent um, unsupervised, but basically training a model with large amount of data to try to predict, for example, what would user play and what would user skip uh, on, the, on, on these devices, and especially in, in the case of Alexa with voice, um, no longer um, meet the requirements. Um, because people expect instant gratification, reinforcing what they, like almost like not only um, being able to read your mind, but every time you do something, you expect the software to be more and more intelligent. Especially nowadays with Alexa, you, you know, people get frustrated because they say, well, don't you know, it's almost like talking to a human now. Like, don't you know what I want? And, and, you know, and they, they say, uh, Michael, play Michael. Well, Michael what? Michael Jackson? Michael Buble? I mean, there's so many ambiguity that now is expected from these systems that um, more and more techniques, and especially may, maybe you've heard of techniques like reinforcement learning, and uh, which has uh, done bounds and leaps beyond uh, 
techniques like deep learning and, 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 and representation learning. Those are areas of, that actually are coming from the labs and directly being applied at these, uh, at these, uh, for these problems. Uh, representation learning being one interesting, right? Uh, for example, can I take some of the qualities of the sound of the, of the music, the beats, the different characteristics of the, of, of, of the genres and, and the, even the artist uh, um, tweets, whatever it is, and make sense of that, right? Um, so how do I represent an artist? How do I represent the song? How can I find similarities between songs, between artists, between customer and artist, between customers and, and tracks? And, and make sure that I do it considering things like time and space. Uh, people have different moods in the morning and the afternoon. Things change every, for every day of the week. You're at, in, you know, at, at home during weekends and you're going to work and, uh, in a car um, during you know, transit in, in, in the morning uh, from Mon Monday to Friday, for example. So all these things require ma amassing a lot of data processing them. The, the biggest challenge is that the data is ever-changing and latency is another, and scalability is the other two biggest problems. Why? Because people uh, expect response time to be very, very short, right? They, they expect results immediately. However, um, different than uh, other domains, the models you can build to respond at that rate cannot be very big because you have real-time uh, calculations done that basically are going to rank different kinds of entities and songs. So you have that limitations of space and time um, and then the number of users and the number of, of songs in the catalogs are huge, right? So those are the things that you know, as you learn how to build distributed systems and machine learning to tackle those problems, um, you solve them but it's, it's not easy. Still, a lot of the try and error experimentation happens today. Uh, so before we switch gears and move into the Q&A portion of the program, I'll remind you that you can actually use the code up there and go to slide.do and uh, pose your question. And you're gonna upload down both questions depending on what hits uh, your interest, if you will. It's a ranking problem. And, uh, I'm wondering, okay, so if I want to pursue a career in tech, I already assume, I already uh, take the ownership that I'm gonna be learning new stuff forever. So I'm curious on, how do you like to stay up to date? How do you like to learn new technologies, any favorite newsletters, YouTube channels, Twitter accounts, anything that, how do you stay sharp? My question. Um, I read a lot. Medium is um, very much a source of constant reading. Um, I follow people in Twitter that I consider both mentors as uh, from a technical standpoint as well as people that I, I admire from a business and management managerial standpoint. Um, and I also constantly look at like LinkedIn and other um, uh, social networks that really enrich you as from a perspective of understanding what's happening in the world. And yes, it's a constant exercise. I mean, there's not one day that I, I, I don't look at what's happening with uh, the latest release of, of, uh, uh, of the uh, Turing um, you know, machine from, from, uh, from Microsoft or, or from OpenAI or from the different uh, uh, companies that are evolving AI to a point where uh, it's becoming very, very much an incredible uh, uh, output. Right now, I just listened to a uh, a podcast actually of Billie Eilish being interviewed by uh, the the um, machine-generated questions um, from. That was I don't know if anyone listened to that, but it was pretty interesting to see Billie Eilish questioned by a machine that analyzed the last year's most asked questions on, on Google and, and, and processed all that data 
and then came up with questions and composed a song uh, with, that was Billy Eilish. Um, and it, it, it is, it's something to, to admire. So, wow, the hard questions are pouring out. So how do you prepare yourself for the transition from an individual contributor to being a people manager? There's nothing wrong, by the way, just to continue as an individual contributor. There's not. There's. And there's one thing that I've learned is many times when things went well, the progression should be me becoming a manager, right? It's almost like if I don't become a manager, I'm not successful. That is far from true. Um, in fact, most of these companies, um, including Amazon, Google, um, and others, um, value even more technical leaders that get to the level of principal and, and beyond fellows, there are very few number of them. In fact, it's easier to become a manager than, than to become a you know, very high level IC. So at, how did I do to transition or how prepared? Well, I looked at what I was good at. So people um, considered me a natural leader. Um, I was leading projects that were hard, ambiguous. I was able to organize people around uh, the projects and execute, so I was good at execution. And I was able to plan and, 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 and deliver on time. And those things that initially came as traits as an IC, like establishing how much time would a task take you know, from coding perspective, translated in things that people realized that were traits uh, of a manager. Um, and then I'd like to this I didn't know at the beginning. Uh, I like to talk to people and, and, and have these one-on-ones and, and, and build teams. That, that, that was not necessarily the case at the beginning. At the beginning, I kind of, I, my, my wife is here, and I kind of told her, uh, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I, I, I'm hearing frustration from the people that report to me. Uh, is that something that I want to do? I would just, just, just code. Uh, much simpler, coding, actually. Um, for me, but then you learn that it's something that you have to do and you get good at it. So it's also in the trainings. Uh, do you have any opinion? What do you think about these new US tech hubs? As in Austin will do to Silicon Valley startups? How do you see this outlook? Do you think about the Silicon Valley changing? In, uh, and I, again, I'm repeating this out loud for the benefit of the podcast audience that is not here right now. So please don't think that I'm crazy. Just really so <laughs> I hate people that read PowerPoint slides. So. <laughs> There's something about the, the valley that is very unique. I, it's hard to describe. Um, I, you know, I've been to many hubs. I mean, for example, when I worked at Verizon, they have a large campus in, in Austin. And it attracts a lot of people. It's very cheap to go there. Um, Amazon has obviously Seattle, right? There's a large tech hub up there in Seattle. Um, I think that that for the remaining future, I don't see, um, I, I see it's dispersing. I think that there's many tech hubs that are going to continue to be created and, and, and exist. But Silicon Valley will still prevail, in my mind, because of many things. One of them is it's, it's a it's a place where people come together with the mind shift and the mind uh, prepared uh, for entrepreneurial uh, experiences. So they're willing to take the risk. And I'm not talking only about the VCs and the money flowing into these companies, but about the personalities of those that come and, and work here. So um, I do feel that there is more and more incentive to go to other tech hubs because of the economic benefit, mm -hmm. but I don't see it going away. I think that still innovation will be very much uh, centered here in the Silicon Valley. Something about the water here. The water uh, and the climate. Uh, the climate, yeah, people love that dry Mediterranean weather. Yeah. Um, what is the measure of success of a machine learning algorithm in Amazon Music? Uh, for example, the song was played until the end. What's the measure of success? Um, well, without disclosing confidential information, let me try to explain. <laughs> um, 
Wait, let me stop recording. Okay. Well, there, there is, this is public information. You can look, look it online, but there is a, a um, measure of, of time that a song needs to be played in order for uh, the author to be paid royalties. So, and similarly in ad tech, and in, in specifically in video ads, there's a certain amount of time, which I will not disclose, and it depends on the industry, that is, triggers what's called a conversion or a recognition of, of a payment on behalf of, of ads being shown to the, to the customer. And it's also, if you guys follow Nielsen, I mean, the, the traditional TV also had checkpoints in, in, you know, in, in the viewership and, and, and kind of these checkpoints uh, establish how much of the, of the viewership uh, watched a given show. So similarly in music, there is such measurement. And yes, a completion determines, for example, that you, you played the song, but it's not necessarily the completion. It's, it's, a, it's an amount of, of time in the, uh, of the song that you listen that would be considered a success. Now, a, uh, uh, a skip would be, well, if you stop the song or you basically switch channels or did something else before reaching that threshold. Um, so that's, that's uh, pretty much the measurement but the metric that you go after is precision, you know, in doing that time for, for, for people to play songs. Got it. Uh, it reminds me this uh, Hacker News article I read a couple of years back that somebody had actually uploaded a five-minute track of silence in Spotify and was getting paid for it because he asked all of his friends to actually play it on repeat overnight. So they were getting locked in his place. Uh, of course, Spotify closed that down. Do you remember what I said about ad tech, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, fraudulent activities are, is, a, is, you know, it's, the bad guys are always out there. So when I was in ad tech, it's all about uh, understanding where, where there are um, people clicking, like clickbaits, and trying to click all over the place to, to gain money. Um, similarly, people uploading songs and creating playlists and. And, 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 and doing these, all these weird things is very much day-to-day -day work. Um, so um, from that perspective, um, you just have to use machine learning to, to tackle those patterns and identify fraudulent activities. So job searching can be stressful, and a lot of the folks here in this room are actively interviewing and looking at their first opportunity right after their master's. Uh, so, tips and tricks for the first interview. Uh, something that you recommend being from the other side. Um, research your companies. Uh, I think that companies have different philosophies. I mean, it's very important to understand what work and where to work. Do you like, do you like to be an entrepreneur? Maybe you should start with a startup. Uh, can you take the risk? Um, different companies have, uh, again, different philosophies. For example, I've noticed that the interview process itself reveals a lot about the company. A lot of companies have a comp uh, taking a very strong technical component, and all they care about is whether you're good at, at, the, at coding and technology. Other companies uh, are a mix of behavioral uh, more uh, philosophical or behavioral questions that you get uh, to measure how you handle situations. And they care more about how would you fit within the teams, how would you um, uh, be able to um, resolve certain problems. So that kind of, of companies is what I like. I mean, those companies I like um, that have a, a different perspective in, and, and their mission in the world is, is also well better defined. So I think that what you need to do is prepare, knowing where and how you may do. So you, if you prepare accordingly, if you want to go to Google or to Amazon or, or to a specific um, startup, look for people that are there. Ask them, how is the interview process? Try to uh, practice as much as possible. Um, and just like when you prepare for school, get good at it by practicing. 
don't take it for granted. I mean, that some of these uh, have very very high bar, um, but it's also good to start with a with a with a startup uh, if you really want to get your hands dirty and sleeves up. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, so they just gave me the two minute warning. So I'm gonna try to do uh, one last one. Ah, I like this one. Startup mindset versus good life-work balance for the success of the project or company. Any thoughts on work-life balance? Is that even a thing nowadays? <laughs> You're in the wrong part of the country, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, I like to think about work-life harmony rather than balance. So if you can harmonize, while still giving the most you can. Um, and it's not really just a trade-off thing, because when you say balance, it's, it's almost like you have to suffer on both sides, or there is a trade-off to be made. Um, if you can make it harmonious and you're, you feel good with yourself, doing what you do, and also people feel good with you, um, I think that's that's the most important thing. So there's a, there's the, if you can achieve that harmony, then you're in a good place. Once it it starts fracturing your your lifestyle, your your family, your you know your your friends, your relationships, then it's time to look for something else. Any party thoughts? Party? Yeah. Any party thoughts? It's uh, the it's the end. Uh, <laughs> I want to be thankful, respectful of your time. Uh, so any anything else that you'd like to leave us with? Work hard, party hard. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thank you.